It's about all the walkable places that have great stories that invite you regardless of your, your age, gender, whatever, where you feel fine lingering. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, August 27th, 2021, and I'm delighted to share this fascinating conversation with Ann Sussman from the Boston area. Well, technically Concord, which is located about 20 miles to the northwest of the city. Anne co-wrote the book Cognitive Architecture with Justin B. Hollander, a professor at Tufts. And I wanted to chat with her about the impact that the design of our built environment has on our comfort level and willingness to lead a healthy, active lifestyle. We get into some pretty cool concepts, but it is a long one, so I'm going to keep this short. But first, please allow me a very brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And we received a very generous donation from a longtime listener and big fan of Active Towns. Thank you so much, KB. I really appreciate the support. And if you too would be willing to back my efforts to promote a culture of activity, just head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply navigate to the donation page. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for whatever support you're able to provide as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity for all ages and abilities. Okay, time to talk design impacts with Anne Sussman. Anne, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. I am thrilled, John. This is great. Yeah, no, I, I've been meaning to make this happen uh, ever since I first heard you on uh, Chuck's uh, podcast. Uh, Chuck, uh, of course, being Chuck Marone with the, the Strong Towns uh, organization and the Strong Towns podcast. So I'm so delighted to have you on. To get us started, let's just have you share a little bit about yourself, and uh, and then we'll dive deep into this this topic that you are so incredibly passionate about. I'm a, a licensed architect, and I'm now an author, uh, and I'm fascinated by architecture and psychology. And what happened, though, I had kind of a strange upbringing. I lived, uh, by the time I was 30, I'd lived 10 years overseas, so I saw a lot of the world. And um, then I got a degree in history, history of paradigm shifts. And then I um, ended up, I don't know, um, studying international relations for some reason. And then I got a job, I don't know, working in Boston for a tech company. And then to make a long story short, every day I went past the Boston Architecture College on my way home. And I thought, this looks interesting. And you could go to school there to study architecture at night after you worked in the day. And so I started taking architecture classes. And I'm like, there's something interesting here. Maybe you can understand why I liked Paris so much when I lived there. And 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 why um, it was so fascinating when I went into a mosque in uh, Israel, I could understand it immediately without knowing anything about the religion. How could that happen? So to make a long story short, I ended up getting a master's in architecture from UCLA. I started at Boston from UCLA. And then after getting my master's in architecture, I realized, wait a minute, the reason I went is I wanted to understand how people function, but architects never talked about that. Right, right. <laughs> and so yeah. then I started working with a planner at Tufts, and we started doing just some basic outreach to people about how would they like their community to look. And this is Justin Hollander at Tufts, and this happened over 10 years ago. And I started realizing, oh my gosh, there's, it's just interesting when you 
combine psychology with planning and architecture. And that's sort of how it happened. And then what happened is it just so happened in the 21st century, there's what's called the 21st century paradigm shift, where there's new understandings in biology that are transforming everything. And it's so big that the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, actually announced that the 21st century is the age of biology. The 20th, the 20th was the age of chemistry and physics. The 19th was the age of engineering. You know, you get the Eiffel Tower, you get bridges, you get trains. The 20th century, you get my dad being a chemical engineer and you get plastics, like they said in the graduate. In the 21st century, we now, my God, we solved the human genome. We're the age of biology. And in places like Boston, the real estate now is driven by what? People building biotech labs. <laughs> And the biotech industry is insane. So Kendall Square in Cambridge gets, I don't know, $9.5 billion a year in venture capital in 2020, up from $3.5 billion. I don't know. Those numbers aren't exact. The amount of stuff going into bio and biotech is incredible. We're in this new age. Why? Well, we solve the human genome. We can now say that your DNA, John, you are 80% um, zebrafish. Did you know that? <laughs> You're 15% mustard grass. Who knew? <laughs> we can see ourselves see ourselves in completely other ways. But it's just it's just this new age of understanding people is. Well, I'm getting off topic here. Well, yeah, no, it, that was just a, a quick little uh, introduction to yourself. So that that's interesting. And I hadn't heard that the 21st century is the age of biology. And of course, you know, given the fact that we're still fighting through a major pandemic and. And as somebody who, you know, that was my foundational studies were in biology and physiology, human physiology. Yeah. So having that history and that foundational knowledge in in the biological sciences and then, yeah, I guess, well, there you go. Well, I will send you the PowerPoint. The OECD um, put out the PowerPoint and I will send it to you. And in fact, I was able, because they're a nonprofit organization, in my book, I was able to steal some of their slides. <laughs> That's the OECD slides. And they labeled it um, a dame of the British Empire, who also, a dame is a female knight of the British Empire, who's also a biologist, PhD biologist. She called it, we're in, the, we're in this new world because the OECD follows where new businesses are happening. And so many of them now have a biotech base. That's where the venture capital's going, right? It's, 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 I'll send you the, I'll send you the PowerPoint and it's, it's very powerful. And when you look at Boston real estate and Boston architecture, oh my gosh, buying a land in Cambridge or Somerville, forget it because they're, and, and most, uh, you know, architecture collapsed here in, in 2008, the recession, whatever. And then it all came back. Why? Biotech and all these firms are now building what? Bio, bio labs. Got it. They're right. building the new bio labs. But so now how do we use this right now? The money's used to being, you know, big pharma drugs. How do we use it to make better places for people? Right. Which brings us right back around to the book. So cognitive architecture, uh, designing for how we respond to the built environment. You, you published that, uh, with, uh, Justin B. Hollander, um, the, the planner that you just referenced over at Tufts and it was published by Rutledge. So talk a little bit about that concept, that, that book. I mean, when I first heard the title cognitive architecture, I was like, what? <laughs> this is interesting. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a truly, truly fascinating blending of what we were just talking about, the built environment and 
our biology and our psychology. Right. Well, that's a great pitch. You should be in advertising, John. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's just it. So, I mean, I think um, I actually had a job, believe it or not. This happened. It was totally crazy. This happened about, oh, I don't know. I don't know, 10 years ago, you know, maybe eight years ago, I forget where I was working with this Harvard professor who was trying to get um, kids in greater Boston or in the inner cities of Boston into tech. And it was working with him that I realized, oh my gosh, there's going to be this tech revolution, this biotech revolution. And I said it one day to Justin, the planner at Tufts, and he said, Anne, that sounds like a book. <laughs> and he'd written four other books. So he still told me how to do a book proposal. And then we said, there's going to be this paradigm shift where we understand more how people work. And he came up with the title, not me, Cognitive Architecture. But it does make sense because perception, how you perceive things subliminally determines your experience and your thinking before you realize it. Right. And the advertisers all know that. For instance, my students, I teach as an adjunct instructor at the Boston Architecture College, and I have my students study the interior design of an Apple store. Everything is determined by cognitive science. So they'll have little iPhones, 10 of them on a 500 pound table or a 400 pound table. Makes no sense. They could be on a little folding table. Why? Makes perfect sense because subliminally, it's called embodied cognition. When something's really heavy, you think something's important on it. That's what your brain does to you. Right. So you see Queen Elizabeth II is always on a really heavy chair or a throne. You never see her on a stool or a folding chair. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Yeah, yeah. And that's why in human history, too, temples, churches are often at the highest point. Yeah. It, 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 because subliminally, because our body influences creates our perception of the world. So an Apple, they totally, oh, an Apple is terrible what they do. They also know that the there's something called the um, endowment effect. When you touch something, because you're a hunter-gatherer, you have to feel you own it. Otherwise, you wouldn't survive. You'd pick an Apple and you wouldn't say it's yours. So, so on purpose, Apple puts all its equipment out so you can touch it with no packaging subliminally, uh, you feel because of the way we evolved, it's an apple. I own it. You're more likely to buy something if you touch it. So I said, what's incredible about an apple store is they're combining our most primitive animal nature with the most sophisticated technology the world has ever seen. And they combine it and they're totally fine with it. And they're not going to tell you. <laughs> right. Right. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's it's brilliant, and we can learn from this, and that's the whole point. I think is to to what you've you've been talking about here and in the book, because once we do understand these concepts, and we'll dive deeper into a, a couple of the uh, the key theories and the key drivers in, in in this, because then if we bet understand this better, then we can build better communities and we can build better streets to encourage people to live a more vibrant, healthy, active lifestyle. And of course, that's the, that's the filter, the lens that I read all this stuff through is what, what can I learn from this that's going to help get our population off their couches, out of their houses, out of their cars, and 
you know, living a healthy, active lifestyle, walking more places, biking right. more places, et cetera. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that because there's there's a few very cool key concepts that are out there. The one that we'll start off with is this this the reason why edges matter so much. Oh yeah, that's fascinating. The edge thing is fascinating. So just like the Apple store knows that when we touch something, we feel we own it and we may not realize that. Um, the other thing that's really important, and then you see in design up until universally, up until I guess after World War One, when it kind of collapses and the development of cars, is humans are edge dependent species. And that's a fascinating thing that we are called sigma tactic. Um, and so what we need is this is the thing about your brain. Your brain's doing all this work without you realizing it. There's this Nobel Prize winning couple called the Mosers, and they wrote this great paper and they say the most advanced surveillance system in the world is in your brain. What? Your brain is a surveillance system. You're only consciously aware of 5% or less of the things it's doing. It's not just the thoughts you're conscious of. There's 95% or more stuff it's doing, sensing the environment you're not even aware of. And if it wasn't doing that, you couldn't survive. And then one of the big sensing things it's doing is looking for secure edge conditions without you realizing it. What I do, I make my students watch how people, when they go into a bar or a restaurant, where they sit. And it's amazing. Or you can ask people who've worked as waiters or waitresses, the, the edge seats get taken first. It's fantastic. You don't even realize your brain's making you go there. <laughs> You're not consciously aware. It's fantastic when you see it. And then I show people uh, pictures of people in a China restaurant, in a restaurant downtown Boston. doesn't matter the culture, exactly the same. That, that the tables that are most out in the open in the center of the restaurant room will be the last that are filled. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, we want the edge condition. And so old cities like Paris, or someone was telling me they were in Venice, and they walked for an hour and a half. How could you walk for an hour and a half? He'd never had that experience, you see, of walking safely for an hour and a half. No cars, but a consistent edge condition of diverse stimuli coming along. So we're very, we're very edge-dependent species. And it makes sense. We don't have eyes behind our head. <laughs> and the other thing you need to know is what psychologists know. Um, a psychologist and doctor like Bessel van der Gold, he'll explain that the natural state of the human, particularly when outside, is vigilance. Mm -hmm. You're vigilant. And so that edge condition kind of gives you a secure sense that you're going to be okay. So when you travel like to Amsterdam, you travel to like Venice, you travel to Paris, the old city in Paris, they have consistent edge conditions where you don't even know, need to know the language but it's speaking subliminal language. Oh, I can still walk here. I don't even really need to get a coffee, but I'll go walking, I'll be fine. And you go walking and it's great because you see people, you're seen. It's what we need to do. And the problem is we've designed modern America, I'd say for the past half, 100 years with no understanding of what people need. And when I worked as an architect, what stunned me was how what the car needs drove the design. Car parking needs determined where the building was. Even the building size, uh, dimensionally, was determined by car parking underneath. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and cars are not thigmatactic. You know, that's not how cars work. They're not? No. <laughs> so so that edge condition thing and not knowing, and it's really weird. I talked to architects, planners, they never heard of that. They had no idea. But it's fair to say they didn't really study it till the 20, to, to, till recently. They suddenly realized, oh, we're an edge-hugging species. We need to see that. So it start making sense. And when you understand that's what we need, no wonder Boston City Hall Plaza, you know, with its brutalist building doesn't work. It's too open. The edges are 
you can't figure out where you are. Right, right. And we see that. I mean, in the book, you you talk about some of the edge conditions that are just naturally sort of hug you and embrace you. And, you know, like, say, the, the ar- arcades and Oh, yeah, yeah, Rue de Rivoli. It's great. Like, people will walk, and Napoleon, designed in 1800, Napoleon's Architects. It's genius. You're in the middle of a city. Cars are all around you. It's busy, but it's this beautiful arched arcade. It's really clear. You can see what's also really important for humans to see subliminally is exit conditions. In case, you know, a lion should run in, you could find an easy exit route. <laughs> you know, whereas people don't know how to design modern arcades that are beautiful. You even also see it in Istanbul, the old mosque, you know, not the old mosque, the the old um, shopping centers, um, you know, in Istanbul um, and the old bazaars in Istanbul. They're fantastic. And they've been there 400, 500 years and there is an arcade. It's just beautiful. And you can walk along it without speaking Turkish. Makes no sense. Um, But yeah, there's a common subliminal language that we've forgotten. Right. And that hurts us all. I mean, one of the things that terrifies me and that most Americans are not aware of is the last I look, we're 46th in longevity, according to the World Health Organization. Right. That means 45 other countries, they live longer than Americans. 70% of Americans are overweight. 40% are obese. Right. 40% complain of loneliness. And there's many, many reasons for this. But one reason is the way we built. Right. Yeah. It's 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 completely. I'll be blunt. It's inhuman and not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, in the book, you 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 point out the fact that uh, you know, <laughs> mankind, you know, uh, humans were uh, naturally ambulatory. I mean, the the women would you know walk somewhere around nine miles per day on average, and the men twelve miles per day, and you know, and and it's not like they're you know on vacation in Paris and just, you know, you know, going from place to place to place because it's so incredibly novel and interesting and fun. But the point is, is that, and and something I repeat over and over and over again, is that humans are designed to be active. And and it's when we're, we're not active that bad things happen. I, I can't believe you picked up on that. Thank you so much for doing that. Excuse me, a train's going by. That's good. This is the city. <laughs> yeah, this is it. Um, but it's so important to pick up on that, and a lot of planners don't even know that. This is a, a, a professor of environmental of, of, of evolutionary biology who I went to one of the lectures. He explained that that the male body evolved to walk twelve miles, the female nine, and he was giving the lecture with special shoes because he explained he never took the elevators at Harvard. He only went up, and you know, he always went making the stairs. When you don't get that, what happens when you do a footfall? It pushes blood into your brain. And your brain needs that blood to actually function. So the sedentary lifestyle, the creating communities where kids have to take a bus to school because it's too dangerous for them to walk because of the cars, is fundamentally unhealthy. We need to walk. We're ambulatory. Um, and, and I was recently in Europe, like before COVID. And when you come back to the States, what's stunning is you suddenly see how heavier people are here because they can't naturally walk. And what's also important as you age, as a baby boomer, I'm aging, you don't wanna be driving, you wanna be walking. Um, it gets harder for just like for young people to drive safe, safer under the age of 20, there are lots and lots of car, car accidents. Older people over the age of 70 or 80, lots of car accidents. We're not built for doing that. Right, right. <laughs> We're built for walking and for making it easy to walk. 
Um, so I bike to work every every day. So does my husband. We're, we can bike. And what's so interesting when you're biking to work, different things happen than in a car. People stop and say hi. You'll meet a neighbor, which you can't do when you're both driving there, even if you're driving three quarters of a mile. It's a different experience. Uh, and a, a very interesting thing, too. Uh, neuroscientist Marco Iacoboni explained to me, he's at UCLA, he explained to me, a car and is an envelope. Mm-hmm. It completely seals your your brain and your body off from the environment, which you evolved in to be part of. Do you understand that just sitting in a car is fundamentally unhealthy? Right. Because you're meant to be seen. You're meant to be taking in the air. You're meant to noticing the smell and to see your neighbor that you didn't see past you. And you can't really do that at 25. You can't take it in. It's just, and what's terrifying too is the car companies are so smart though. They use the latest biometric devices to tease us, to car brain us. They show beautiful pictures of families getting in the car, young kids, sexy women, you know, and it's like, uh, this is poison. (laughs) If I were president, I would have little, you know, just like cigarettes used to have these things. This is unhealthy. I would say 46,000 Americans will die in this vehicle. Riding more than so many hours a day is going to impact your nerve. I mean, I would make it. <laughs> and now it's it's up since COVID. 17 Americans are dying. Every, pedestrians are dying every day being hit by a car. It, it's like, what? <laughs> Come on, guys. We got to look at this. So one of the things that you 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 snuck in there, um, you talked a little bit about uh, about the stairs, and uh, you mentioned yeah. the evolutionary biologist over at Harvard. Was was that Daniel Lieberman? Yeah, Dan Lieberman. Okay, that's right. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I figured yeah, that, that must have been him. That was Dan Lieberman, and his whole idea. And so he really he gets it. So he really we got to walk, and it's um, it, you can walk pretty well in Cambridge where he works, but. In most other parts of America, it's very hard. My, my husband's family's from Ohio. It, you can't walk anywhere, you know, in the suburb where they live. Well, and as a human species, I mean, we obviously can, uh, you know, attain and do amazing things. I mean, we can accomplish, you know, you know we can run marathons or, or even farther. You, we can do ultra marathons and, and things of that nature. But the point is, is that, left to our own devices, if we have an easier way out, we'll take that easier way out. So going back to the stairs and what Dr. Lieberman was talking about there is that, you know, he he goes out of his way, he takes the stairs. For most of us, if we're given the, the easier way, we do that. So we can achieve amazing things. Our genetics are such that we can truly achieve amazing things, but we have what I like to call a lazy gene, which basically says that, hey, if we can take that easier way, if we can go up in the elevator to the second floor or the third floor, we're going to do that. If we can you know, jump in the car and it's we're habituated to being able to do that, we're going to do that over you know, walking the half mile to the corner store or getting on the bike and riding to work. And I'm so glad that you talked about the value of being on the bike, because this is something I wanted to talk with you about is, is that opportunity for social interaction. But I also wanted to bring this back to some of the stuff that's in the book here, which is the, the visual stuff and being able to really perceive our environments. And, and I noticed that too, is that, uh, since when I ride a bike, I ride a bike, um, at a speed that's, I would consider pedestrian plus, right? It's about the speed uh, of which that I would actually 
run. If I were out doing a run, I'm, 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 that's about the speed that I'm riding a bike. And in other words, I'm not going very fast. <laughs> and the level of perception that you have is so acute. In fact, I notice that I can notice things oftentimes even more so when I'm on the bike riding at that slower pace than even when I'm walking. Because if I'm, I'm walking, it's just kind of too slow. You know, my mind wanders or I'm listening to a podcast. You know, do you get where I'm going with this? Is that I think that, you know, that opportunity of being able to take in more sites, in other words, it's in, intellectually, it's interesting, you're able to kind of cover more ground, but it's not so fast that you feel disconnected to that environment. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's why you can see why some countries that have higher longevity in the United States, like Denmark, they've really promoted, they've actively done it for 40 years Right. They promoted, and I think they're like seventh or eighth in longevity worldwide, where we're 46th. They actively promote biking. It lowers their global climate change footprint. You know, it just it just all makes so much more sense. That's it. I mean, that's the that I think is the confusing thing. I think that because World War One and World War Two were so bad, and because they also unleashed incredible te technological developments, like even the internet we're having here comes from war technology, right? People thought this idea, I saw that in my parents, this idea of being modern. You know, we were modern. And my dad's first job as a chemical engineer was making plastics. <laughs> and, and my parents kept DDT in the closet, in the, in the, in the medicine cabinet. Imagine. And, and, and we didn't really understand that, wait a minute, this, this kind of linear thinking that's very much the war mentality doesn't really work when you're in a closed system where everything's connected. Yeah. And where the, 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 the human brain and body are not modern, we're 40,000 years old. It hasn't changed or more, two, we're a 200,000, 250,000 year old species, but our body and brain have not changed since the Pleistocene. We're about 40,000. We are stone age creatures. And there's a great quote from a psychologist in the UK is you can take us out of the stone age, but you can't take the stone age out of us. And that's where the disconnect in architecture and planning is. There was this whole thing. We can be modern. I mean, now we've got jets and we've got planes. We've got every, put everybody in a car. And, and, and But wait a minute. What happens when you're in a car? Actually, it's really bad for your body sitting there. And then the problem with the cars, too, is they spend so much time just parked. <laughs> and then that destroys the infrastructure of the city. Right, right. Exactly. And when it just doesn't work. And so then the whole thing collapses because it doesn't understand that, wait a minute, that's not what the nervous system is designed to take in. I did my first mobile eye tracking study where you wear these $25,000 glasses and have people walk down a street, an old street and a newer street. And what blew our minds, without conscious awareness, people immediately, even if they're parked, their brain makes them look at the car. Mm -hmm. Because part of your brain, even a parked car, is, is and when it's moving, your brain really goes to look at it because it could kill you, right? But part of your brain thinks a car is a large animal. And the car companies all know this and they play on it. They all know it and play it. But, but it, the subliminal brain and that energy, so designing a street with no cars, designing a street that even allows car parking, the energy impact on your brain, you will be able to, you can track it that'll be more stressful walking down a street with parked cars. So that's why Disney designed Main Street Disneyland, which became 10 years, by the 1960s, 10 years after it was laid out, the most popular tourist destination in America. 
no cars allowed. You know, one tram, no cars. Because so people can feel free, you know. It's interesting, you know, the, the I want to go back to what you were talking about, the legacy of war. And I'm going to bring this back around to active living and active mobility and and environments where people feel comfortable being and, right. and walking, right. et cetera. But the, w- the direction I want to go with this is because you also brought up modernism. So let's let's take a look at the legacy of, <laughs> of war and uh, specifically what we believe, you know, was potentially the legacy of, of World War One. And then, you know, the sort of the the age of modernism and and especially the brutalist modernism that came out. Talk a little bit about that, because this is truly, truly fascinating. And then after you talk about that, I want to bring it back around to what we know and what we experience out in our environment uh, and and how it relates to whether this is a place we want to walk. Right. Right, right. But it's again, it's that subliminal brain directing you all the time. And that's what we don't understand. But the advertisers all know that. And the Apple people all know that. After the the wars were so horrible in the First World War, and then the 20 years later, you get the Second World War. I have a son studying history. And he said, well, you know, mom, now they sell, they teach it as a 30 year conflict, one war just immediately leading to the other, and fantastic technological advance in the war. Um, I had a grandfather in World War One. I. I didn't learn about that till uh, till recently. Nobody ever talked about it, right? But the wars were amazing, and um, I think war is so traumatic. You want to forget the past and move on. But there's this great Buddhist quote that goes by Daisaiko Ikeda: "A successful vision of the future is not possible without an accurate knowledge of the past." So to really build the active communities you want to really build a place where you were just saying environments people feel comfortable being in. We need to understand what happened, that we created so many environments in the 20th century where people aren't comfortable. And we denied it was happening. That's exactly what happened. And and then Disney saw it happening. And so now you had to pay, what, $100 to experience a nice main street like he grew up in in 1905 in Missouri, you know, because cars took away the streets that used to be for people. Right, right. <laughs> so let's just let's describe this for the audience. Um, what are we talking about when we talk about, you know, the the difference between that traditional architecture style where and then we can even wrap this around to some of the eye tracking um, uh, information and then the, you know, what kind of came out from, you know, the, the, the movement post-World War One and, and modernism. Right. Right. Well, see, a lot of it, we didn't understand what, what, what we were doing, <laughs> you know, because basically World War One was horrific and we didn't know that 20% or more of the people who survived World War One, um, there were like 20 million casualties, 20 million deaths, that they ended up with PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder didn't even enter the doctor dictionary, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, until 1980. <laughs> and that didn't happen because they, they you know, they, they talked about shell shock, but, you know, uh, armies didn't want to talk about, you know, what that they, they had lost if they'd won, right? They didn't, you were supposed to be a man and just suck it up or, you know. But now we know, and this is really only since the 1990s and maybe early 2000s that, oh my God, trauma really changes the brain. 
That's huge. And it wasn't until like, I think 1994 that you could do um, magnetic resonance imaging where you actually can go inside the brain and look at how its architecture has shifted if you had a traumatic incident. You can actually measure the difference in the brain and you can actually see that you take in stimuli differently. And that's what you can see. And then you can, and, and it's really interesting. So it turns out traumatized soldiers have a hard time looking at faces. Traumatized soldiers have a hard time taking in detail. And then when you study architectural history, you learn there are suddenly these three modernist fathers of architecture who are treated when you study architecture like gods, you know, Walter Gropius, Mies van der Rohe, um, Le Corbusier, and you realize, oh my gosh, but let's really look at their life. Walter Gropius served four years in um, the World War I trenches in the German army before he immigrated to the United States and was hired by Harvard. Um, and, and then when you study what he built, uh, it's funny, a doctor at um, Harvard Medical School of all things um, explained to me every single design move is you can tell it's post-traumatic stress disorder. See, the thing that the car companies and the tech companies know is humans don't see reality. It's a construct between your eye and your brain architecture. If you've been traumatized, your brain will make you see the world differently. And so Walter Gropius, Mies van der Rohe, Neutra, Richard Neutra, they were all World War I vets. And you can see in their architecture the blankness, the hidden front doors, the focus on the view inside going out. There's a professor at University of Southern California who explains World War I turned architecture inside out. And that's exactly what happened. And so suddenly detail vanishes. And then, but there are other reasons for it too, industrial processing, and in a lot of ways, I think the arts and crafts class that was building beautiful architecture, you know, at the turn of the century, they all died. <laughs> Something like 40% of the men in all men in France, 40% of all men in Germany were in World War I. That's incredible. And then, you know, mass deaths and, and, and mass exposure to death. So now they know you can get PTSD, not only with your brain, you know, suffering the trauma and staying in a traumatic state, staying frozen with the past in you. You can have that even if you weren't in your war, but if a lot of your family dies, that can give you PTSD. Knowing all your classmates died, that can give you PTSD. There's a new book out a couple, three years ago that Jacqueline Kennedy had PTSD. Well, if your husband's forehead lands on your lap, you know, <laughs> that, but it was never diagnosed. She dies at a chain smoker, she dies at 64. You know, uh, it, it, we didn't know in the 20th century, there were things we didn't really want to look at. It wasn't until the end of the 20th century, we suddenly started looking at them. And then we got the new technologies that actually got us to see inside the brain. We could say, oh my gosh, this is real. Post-traumatic stress disorder is real. And now there are all these new therapies about using art, using dance, all these new ways of treating it, but acknowledging it. And actually they even use eye tracking to show how well the veteran's healing is happening. So he'll actually, if the healing is working, he'll start looking or she will start looking at the world differently. They can tell by following how their eyes subliminally move with, with eye tracking infrared sensors. It gets a little complicated, but it is pretty interesting that the founding fathers of modern architecture were essentially mentally ill. And, and they were, there's this great quote by Bessel van der Kroep, who wrote this New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a really important book, came out in 2014. I think it's the number one, you know, psychology book in the past eight years. He says, hurt people hurt other people. 
So when you're damaged, you don't realize what a social species needs to see, or you don't realize how people as a social species actually need mirroring. As that's one of the downsides of being a social species. We really need each other, John. <laughs> you seeing me, me seeing you, you seeing your friend, your mother saying hi, you meeting up, you know, you, actually biologically, that's what we're designed for. We're designed for living and playing and working together. That's how the brain is literally designed. And when then, and then when you get trauma though, trauma set the, the, the person that gets damaged, it's called devolutionary. And you're not able to integrate or you're not able to understand what people need. So modern architecture created all this blankness. Well, that's what the founding fathers felt safest in. You would too, if you spent four years in a World War I trench. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, if your captain was shot right in front of you. Um, you, you that's what happened to Gropius, right? Um, if half the men you were with died in eight months, you wouldn't be the same person. You couldn't be. You have to fragment and separate out. And so architecture, what's so fascinating to me is architecture is so face-like. It suggests faces in India, in Israel, in China. It's always so face-like. Well, why? Because subliminally, that's what humans need to see to be able to find the front door. They also need that mirroring to feel secure in the space and get out of hypervigilance. Right. And so that's that's one of the things that you end up seeing too when you start doing this eye technology eye tracking technology, you can actually see the lingering and yet when when they're presented when a person is presented with a disjointed modern architecture, they they don't know where to track to. They don't know where to go or my gosh, there was I don't know a multi-million dollar school built in my town and the parents can't find the front door. Right. And this happened like three, the parents can't, and they don't realize that creates certain anxiety. So they say to the kid, are we meeting at the front back door? Or the front? But, but that's, a, you know, this is the thing, our perception, this is the big thing that architects and planners don't understand. Human perception evolved without buildings and human perception hasn't changed since we invented architecture 5,000 years ago. <laughs> So we look at a building like we're looking for relationship. It's and and we're built for that. We're built for relationship, and that's why. Oh my gosh, the advertisers know it. I mean, Trader Joe's knows it. They have Trader Joe as the idea, you know, <laughs> or the Amazon has has a smiley face, you know. It, they all know it. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, Colonel Sanders, a guy in a white beard, like they make it this one individual. Why? Because even in a group of friends, human perception happens one at a time, individual by individual. It's dyadic. It's one. It's meant for paired relationship with the other looking at you, me looking at John, John looking at me, me looking at my friend. You know, that's how it is one at a time. And so the corporations take advantage of that. Right. And as I mentioned earlier, I get excited about this because if I understand what, how to create an environment that is going to encourage more people to go to and want to be and not have that anxiety that you had just mentioned, right. you know, that gives us the power to better uh, shape our built environments to encourage people to be more active, be healthier, you know, maybe take the stairs <laughs> because we've designed, you know, the stairs in a way that is, 
is stimulating in a good way and interesting and it draws people in. And so we want to address the fact that, yeah, much of our built environment, you know, like plazas and, and other types of, you know, and pathways and things of that nature, are they creating comfort right. or are they creating anxiety? If they're creating anxiety and fear, we're probably not going to be lucky. We're not going to be successful at encouraging healthy active lives. All the technology is there. All the biometric tools are there to ask those questions and answer them with statistical accuracy. It's all there, but nobody's really asking them. So we're designing schools where parents can't find the front door. Well, what are you doing that for? And that creates anxiety. And do you think 50 years from now, people will want to renovate that building? Probably not. You know, whereas the old schools, my gosh, the old schools that were built in 1910 are always getting renovated. They face the street, you know where the front door is. Um, they have a sense of presence. They don't face the parking lot. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Well, we had institutionalized knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation to generation of how to build successful places. If I sound like Chuck Marone, it's because I'm a disciple of, of what he's been talking about. And it just, it put together all, so much of, of that made sense. What you guys are doing in terms of like really digging down into and looking at eye tracking is you're essentially proving what we as societies knew until we forgot it. Well, we forgot it for a reason. But we forgot it for a reason because World War One and World War Two were so traumatic. Well, and and also and also in putting in the automobile and putting in the automobile and that and that screwed up everything. Because, because in a way you destroy place because the person is not in the place when they're in the car. Exactly. And then, and then, then it, it, you can't, you can't really have cars and people. I mean, I know that's a little radical, but. It's not that radical, actually. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it, it, it can, they can coexist. Cars and people can coexist. But when you look at the hierarchy of, uh, of the pyramid in terms of, uh, you know, really, who should be prioritized? It's the people, right? Which means the car is then uh, tamed and calmed to a point where it it becomes less helpful and less useful because it's a tool that is really truly meant to get you from point A to point B as quickly as possible, right? And so, and that's one of the reasons why. Uh, the bicycle is such a wonderful invention because it it expands. It's again pedestrian plus. You can you know get around a tremendous amount of a city. And if you look at our traditional built environment, uh, you can cover a, a a vast amount of of real estate at a comfortable pace and enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy your surroundings. Right, and you can see it. It can be done, but it. It, it, it requires a commitment, you know, to make bike lanes that are really safe. Um, and they've done that in, 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 in Copenhagen and places like that. I was stunned. I think I was there two or three years ago and I was stunned. I saw women biking to work with a kid behind them at eight in the morning wearing their high heels and they felt totally safe. And, and the bike lanes were really adequately sized and they, they were separate from the car lanes. Often what I see in Massachusetts, we don't have that, um, it's just not, 
they really got it, made it work, but they worked on it. They actively worked on it. They made social health a priority. Yeah. Well, and, and in your neck of the woods, just across the river in Cambridge, uh, they're getting there. They're, they're really working hard to create uh, some wonderful infrastructure that is physically separated from the motor vehicles and, and also separated from the, the pedestrian realm. And so it, it is happening here in North America uh, gradually, but it's, it's hard. This is built environment and it's hard to change it. And this is a, and the car companies, what's amazing to me, the amount of um, commercials and advertising the car companies push. I think there's more commercials. Cars support so much TV shows and and that. So, but they don't. I don't know who's supporting walking and biking that way. You know, <laughs> yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are right. Well, um, I don't think you're you're a Honda, BMW, or GM. You know, and and they, they're supporting so much. Making Americans are there's this term car brained. We're car brained. And, and the car braining really, really hurts us. The externality of the car braining we're not looking at, and we really should. It, it because And the way it impacts architecture just blew my mind, you know. But you are seeing some cities, they're saying zero parking requirements for new construction. That's starting to happen. And that's, you know, the radical mayors in Connecticut are starting to do that. And you could do, do a new building with zero parking requirements. You're starting to see it, but it's it's just starting. So it's, um, but but it is. But I think we have to, you know, this idea that we're not modern is really important, and that we're part of a system. And Mother Nature has a design for us, just like she's kind of preset our heart rate and our breath rate, kind of preset our longevity. <laughs> you know, she's preset that we need to have water every day. She's also preset what we need to see, and it's not that you can't be inventive. You can. But the fact is, I can go to Venice, what is it, 340, and I feel at home there. Makes no sense. I can go to Paris, makes no sense. Makes perfect sense because it, it's, it, it, it echoes the hidden brain architecture I didn't know I was carrying that makes me feel safe. So we have to acknowledge evolution and, and that we're not modern. And, and, and when we do that, we'll be healthier and happier. And, and how much we need people. That's the that famous uh, Danish planner, Jan Gill, always says, you know, man's greatest joy is man. Yes. People need people. So on biking, you can interact. You know, it's so funny. When I bike, I, when I pass someone, we, we, we smile, you know. And that doesn't happen when I'm driving. I don't smile. It's- yeah, if you do that when you're when you're driving, they're going to think, what's wrong with that person? Whereas biking, you smile or we talk about the weather. We say, oh, my God, did you see the see the horse over there? I mean, I don't know. Good to see you. Well, so you mentioned Mother Nature. So let's let's talk a little bit about the, the biophilia side of all of this, too. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tee this up by giving an example of uh, a recent trip that I had uh, to Indianapolis uh, attending the uh, Walk Bike Places conference uh, in June. And had the opportunity to ride my bike around on the cultural trail, uh, which is uh, separated bicycle infrastructure. And, and in certain places, it's, it's shared use paths uh, with bikes and peds. But they do a fantastic job of separating the environment from the motor vehicle travel lanes with 
really wonderful plantings and rain gardens, stormwater runoff infrastructure. So rain gardens there. And at the time in June, uh, the flowers were in bloom in after a day, you know, day after day after day while I was there, I was out filming and, 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 you know, getting B roll and taking photography and it, it, you just walk away from it feeling so wonderful. You're, you're getting around by bike, you're, you know, exploring the city, but you're constantly surrounded by this little band of, of nature that's right there. And in some cases they even were able to, to get a little bit of a tree canopy happening too. Talk a little bit about that because, you know, you, you do talk a, a little bit about the biophilia side of things. Yeah, there's a lot of biophilia. Yeah, I don't focus on biophilia too much, but there it is really important. Um, seeing plants and having having nature, having trees, can really important is really important. The reason I don't speak about it too much is I think a lot of times architects use it as a band aid. They'll do it. Yeah, you immediately said right. They'll do a really bad building where you can't find the front door, but they'll have like a, you know a beautiful place for for to put some bushes or an apple tree or something. In the end of the day, that's not going to make it like Paris. At the end of the day, it's not going to work. The architecture is still not working. And you have to understand that if you don't understand what war did to us, you don't understand that the people who came up with modern architecture couldn't regulate neurotypically. If you don't understand that nature's preset, how often you subliminally need to be able to fixate, to walk without realizing it, adding those trees, it's not going to really work. You know, you know, so so I think, yes, biophilia is important. It's all important. But in the end of the day, better design is important. Designing for walking is important. Designing for visual stimulation is important. Designing to get people out of cars so kids, designing so kids feel safe walking. And a lot of this is really difficult to do because the tr in the end of the day, architecture is really about transit. And transit, the transit engineers are brilliant and they've set the speed limits in the 20th century all around car throughput. So I live in a historic town of Concord, Massachusetts, home of places like um, Thoreau, who wrote all about walking and everything. But in front of the public school, a half mile, from my house, the speed limit is 35 miles per hour. It's like, what are you thinking when the science is there that if a child is hit at 35 miles per hour, their chance of death is like 40%. If they're hit at 20 miles per hour, which the speed limits now are in Cambridge, Mass, 75%, their chance of death is 5%. So it's like, what are we doing? We're the home of like the famous, you know, American writers who talked about nature and walkability. And, we're, and but it's unfortunately, the town engineers are run by laws that made street speed governed by throughput. What the? And throughput is determined what by 80% of what the cars go going through. What are we doing? Car throughput? And, and the car throughput doesn't think about the fact Male needs to walk 12 miles a day, female nine. The fact that the science of if you're hit by a car at 35, you know, and then the cars in Massachusetts, there's a thing where people kind of use speed limits as kind of an idea of how you drive, but generally they drive five to 10 to 15% over them. You, have you seen that in some parts of the country? They don't, it's kind of an idea, but it's not what you follow. So they're going 40 miles per hour past the public school. What? So, so it's like you realizing, oh my gosh, to be able to get the architecture and walkability and bikeability, I've got to go to the engineers 
and I've got to change the laws that govern car throughput. And that is hard because a lot of that has been in place for 60 years. Which brings us to your final chapter. And we and, and you talk in, in the final chapter, you talk a little bit about the you know, what we need to do moving forward. And one of the very first things that, that is talked about in there is we got to get the land use right. We we need to de-emphasize this need for all these long trips, these automobile trips. So, you know, talk a little bit about some of the other, you know, key things that, you know, we really need to change in terms of how we're adjusting addressing this and, and, or, or, or if you just had one or two things where you'd be like, you know, if we just did this, it would make a huge difference. Right. Well, I think that the big idea would be that we're not modern and that you want to design for people of all ages. You don't just want to design. The doctors now say to you that the human brain, if you have a kid, it's not adult till, till he's 26. So if he gets his license at 20, I don't know if you know this, his chances of accident is really high. And then as you get older, that's the other thing, baby boomers, as someone in the baby boom generation getting older too, they're not really designed for driving in your 70s and 80s, you know, the chance of... So so, so I think the big thing is to, to, you really want built environments that encourage everyone to be together, like those streets in Copenhagen or you know, or, or old cities in Europe where everybody could walk. And this is the so it's such interesting thing that everybody feels good in them even now. You feel like you belong. And Rick Steves does all these tr- travel programs, you know, and he's made a big success doing them. But what is he really showing? He's showing all the walk. What is this program really about? It's about all the walkable places that have great stories that invite you regardless of your, your age, gender, whatever, where you feel fine lingering. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Why can't I experience that every day? You know, do you know what I'm saying? We need to respect our needs, our hidden needs better. (laughs) Well, and you just, you mentioned a word there, you know, they tell, tell great stories. And that's also in in your book too, is the storytelling is so important. Storytelling is so important. Yeah. And, and why don't you tell a little bit more about what you mean by that when you, you say storytelling? Oh, yes, story. That's the fascinating thing that I didn't understand, and that's absolutely mind-blowing. Not only are we a social species, we really need, we love stories, and we need stories. And then, just like our face bias, it turns out the the ability to see faces is, and the the looking for faces is encoded in our brain before birth. Um, Stories, uh, we love stories. Three-year-olds love stories. We need stories. Um, You go to Disneyland to see the stories. and, and it turns out they've also figured out the, narr- the circuitry in your brain that enables storytelling. That's part of the 21st century paradigm shift, understanding the human brain better. And we have this unique storytelling ability. Well, why? Well, it's built in the circuitry of our brain. And what happens if you get Alzheimer's or certain other diseases, you lose the ability to tell stories or remember stories and you lose your identity. So the fact that storytelling and identity are connected is very interesting. Um, yeah, you know, people go to places to the stories to see, you know, the famous George Washington's house, one of the most, you know, visited places in, in America. They want the story. Yeah. In Concord, where I live, they go to see the old North Bridge where there was a famous battle in 1775 that helped start the American Revolution. You know, well, why? The bridge has actually been rebuilt six times. Uh, <laughs> makes no sense. That makes perfect sense because we want us, we want the story. We want it. 
we, we need the story. And then great architecture has a sense of stories or, or also great churches. There's a beginning of the church, so there's the nave, then there's when the then there's where the priest is. I mean, there's a the sense of beginning, middle, and end in, in a great building where you don't even need to know the religion, but you see I'm suddenly there. Frank Lloyd Wright House is the same feeling, a small entryway, and you walk through a little corridor, and then, oh my gosh, the beautiful dining room or living room where you see the garden, that, that sense of flow and story, because I think it calms us down, sense of story. When things are disorganized or random, like a lot of suburbs feel, you get anxiety. Where, where am I supposed to go? I don't know where anything is. With stories, you know, Notre Dame's in the center of Paris. Oh, it all makes sense, you know. I can walk around it. I know where I am. I can find a cafe and then there's the church in the center and then I can orient even though I'm going to be here 24 hours. It all, it all makes sense. So you need narrative coherence. That's what humans need. Um, and we live for that. We live for elaborating our story. I think that's when, you know, the ancestry and all this fascination with your DNA that's really getting crazy now, you know, because people want to find out the story they didn't know in their family. Who knew my story? It, it makes them see themselves differently. Stories are everything. And, and, and the problem is in, in modern suburbs, don't tell a story. And, and, and so it's like, where are we? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's an important question is where are we? And you mentioned the landmarks and I noticed in the, in, in the, in the book, in the margins, I had written down, you know, Hey, maybe this is one of the reasons why, I love Boulder, Colorado so much because it's, it, uh, the flat irons are right there. It's a landmark. I know where I'm at at any point in time when I'm in the city, because I can see where I'm at relative to the flat irons. And so, you know, there, there's something to that. And, and that is, that plays into part of this narrative of where you are. Yeah. Narrative is so important and we undermine narrative is so important. People crave narrative. Well, you can see it. Otherwise, the movie industry wouldn't work. You know, people crave narrative and meaning and, 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 and they get scared when there's nothing there, like an empty parking lot. Why is it terrifying? It's terrifying. An empty parking lot in a dead mall. It feels like death. You know, it, it, they're, they're, where are we? We're nowhere. Um, it doesn't have any, any sense of order. People need, just like you want to arrive at someone's house for Thanksgiving dinner with a table set and you know where the cranberry sauce is, you want narrative coherence in your town. And, and it just, it's, 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 it's as we need it like we need water. It's the same thing. It helps us soothe our system. I think it's, it's, it's really, it's really important that hunt for meaning, but you can understand because in a way why we abandoned everything and we, and, and you know, architecture up until World War I really was always evidence-based. They would copy what worked well in the past. And then we abandoned everything. Well, with trauma, things were hugely traumatic the first 50 years of the 20th century. And with trauma, now they know you drop everything. You fragment. You don't, Gropius would say to his students, we're going to forget the past. We're starting from zero. Right. And I think that's, that was the feeling. We were going to build modern. Everyone was going to drive cars and we had lead-powered gas and Based on your personal, professional, and research experiences, what advice would you have for the listeners out there who may be intrigued by what we're talking about? Maybe they're inspired uh, to make a difference in their community. What advice would you have for them? Well, well I think evidence-based design really matters. So you want to do a design. You don't want it just to be new. 
you want it to look, well, can you give me an example? Just like with evidence-based medicine, you don't want to try a drug for the first time. <laughs> you want to make sure it works. And and, and, and we should look at that in, in, in terms of community planning. I mean, where are the best community plans? Where's the best local library that's new that works? Or maybe it's one that was built in the 1890s that people really remember. Yes. And, and in other words, you know, find, find what works for you in your community or maybe in a neighboring community or where people can really walk or bike, or maybe go to Europe and look. The fact is the Europeans are ahead of us. They do have much higher longevity. Um, and, and we should look at it. Evidence-based design, design is real and we should take advantage of it. Um, and, but also human experience really matters. Does this make you feel depressed or stressed? When I grew up, we were taught to ignore that. Well, no, you actually now, they know you can't ignore that. That's gonna impact you. Right. I mean, walking into a glass building where you kind of feel like you don't like it, that's actually going to impact your body, you know, every day. Or just learning how to design better crosswalks. That's a big thing now, too. <laughs> you know, but evidently, I would definitely work for evidence-based design and, and design that fits, that's sustainable and fits with the, the traditions or with, with, with the place you're at. I mean, America is a pretty diverse country. Yeah. So where's the best place uh, for folks to follow you and your work? Well, um, we do have a new nonprofit. We've got about seven people on our board, um, a couple people in academia and architecture, urban planning. We have a neuroscientist um, on the board. It's called the Human Architecture and Planning Institute. We're always looking for sponsors. We're always looking for to do new work to improve the understanding of humans, uh, how humans function. Humans are, we're a really interesting species. And the fact that we're so subliminally driven um, is actually fascinating. And when you can do some of these tools and see that, it is mind blowing. Um, and you can do these tools to predict the human experience. It's pretty interesting too. Um, so the Human Architecture and Planning Institute would be fine. It's thehappy.org. There's another blog that has about 100 blog posts on it called geneticsofdesign.com, where we look at where you can just really, it's e really easy reading. You can scroll through and see eye tracking um, and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, there's also ansussman.com. But I think this, this field combining psychology, neuroscience, and architecture is really going to grow. And I think young people um, are, are, aren't scared about talking about emotions the way people in my generation were. <laughs> and talking about a feelings and stress is something people openly talk about now. And that's something that's good because the quality of your emotional experience drives your health. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Well, once again, and that website is thehappy.org and that's H-A-P-I.org. <laughs> yeah, thehappy.org. Yeah. Very good. Well, hey, and this has been such a truly fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you, John. You are great. You're going to make Active Towns happen and you're going to make a difference integrating sciences into community planning, it's really important. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 89 of the Active Towns podcast. I sure hope you enjoyed this intriguing discussion with Ann Sussman. I do highly recommend her book that she co-wrote with Justin B. Hollander, Cognitive Architecture, now out in an expanded second edition. 
For more information on the topics we discussed and to see some photos and videos which will bring these concepts to life, head on over to the landing page for this episode, which you can find at activetowns.org. And one last reminder before we part ways. Again, if you're enjoying the podcast and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote a culture of activity, please help me out by making a donation, spreading the word, and subscribing. Thank you all so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.